I would like to introduce Miguel. He's been our speaker in the evening service for this month, and this is his last evening with us. But come on out, Miguel. It's been great having him here, and I think you young people are really going to appreciate him, so, like the rest of us have. Great. Good evening, everybody. And Stefan, thanks, and thanks to you, and thanks to Albert and just the whole Regeneration family. It's been a wonderful, wonderful month. I was sharing with Albert the first week that this was going to be the first time since 1981 that I was in the same, basically the same area as my brother and his lovely wife. And so it was, um, it's just great to be here, to spend time with your family as well as mine. So uh, let's pray real quick, and then we'll begin. So, Lord, I thank you for this time. Again, I thank you for Region. I thank you for their ministry and what they do and um, how you honor that. Lord, I just ask that you bless this message. You bless our souls. You open our minds and you open our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, this is the last Sunday evening I'm going to preach, and we started in Exodus, first few weeks. Myself and Dr. Bruce Bloyan, who also teaches at Azusa Pacific, and he's my mentor. Today I wanted to title this uh, A Responsive Faith, with the help of one of my nephews who helped me title this. But it's called A Responsive Faith, and what I want to talk about is what is our response in our faith? And there's a lot of responses. This isn't going to be the only one, but it's a response. But before I do that, one of the things I wanted to share with you or show you is, is the Talmud, okay? Some of you know what the Talmud is. If you don't, let's read this. It says, the Talmud contains the opinions of thousands of rabbis on a variety of subjects, including law, ethics, philosophy, customs, history, theology, lore, and many other topics. The Talmud is the basis for all codes of rabbinic law and is much quoted in other rabbinic literature. This is a sample. This is a sample page from the Talmud. If you look at some of your Bibles, uh, in fact, most Bibles today, if you look at the Bible, it has the text, and then usually at the bottom, there's some type of note attached to it. Not everything, but that is what you have here. Basically, you have a central text, and then all around it, what you have is centuries of commentary. For instance, you can say there is a law that says if you're in a financial position where you need money, you can sell your daughter into slavery. If you have a child, uh, a teenager, who's out of control, you can take that child basically to the town elders. And if they agree, then the townspeople get together and do what? Stone them to death. Thank goodness we don't do that anymore. So the Talmud, what that does is even back then, it comments on that. And then throughout the centuries, what it has done is commented, saying, okay, you know what? That was for a specific period of time. We don't do those things anymore, okay? That's what the Talmud does. I also wanted to mention this because the Talmud, well, it reminds me of San Francisco in this way. One of the things that I experienced in my time up here is how different a nation the San Francisco area is compared to Southern California. And I'll call it a different nation because that's what it is. And, and I say that positively. It's a good thing. It's a great thing, in fact. I've had these wonderful lunches, dinners with certain people here in the church, and it's just been fantastic. I mean, the depth of the questions that they ask, I think most of them I couldn't answer, but I just said what I could uh, and tried to help. But it really has been fantastic. Southern California's faith, a lot of its Christianity and its Christian community is more of a Kim Kardashian Christianity. And that's the truth. There's a lot of status. Status is important in Southern California, in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. And, well, it's true. I met with uh, Zach earlier. Zach, you're back there, right? I was blown away. In fact, I'm still a little bit in shock here and standing here. We met just prior to the service tonight, and I shared that with him. And 
he said, I have no idea who Kim Kardashian is. <laughs> and, and I said, God bless you, and I bowed down to him. <laughs> you know, TMZ in Los Angeles isn't just TMZ, it's the news. Uh, that's what it's considered. There's a different ethos, there's a different sense up here. And there was someone else I spoke with as far as comparing Los Angeles to the Bay Area. And this is a gentleman, uh, he's married and he's a physician, actually his wife is also a physician. And he's taken a position down in Los Angeles uh, at a hospital in West LA. It's one of the things that he also brought up. He just, he was amazed at the concept, the idea and the importance of status in Southern California. So it's really something. But I'm gonna talk about that a little bit later. Let's keep going. What one word, and this is a question for all of you, and this is similar to the Talmud, what you're gonna do is you're gonna talk with each other. You're gonna discuss a question. And this is the question, the first one. What one word which cannot be trumped by another best describes the Bible? So for you, what one word best describes the Bible. And it'll be different for most of you. Maybe it'll be the same for most of you. But do me a favor, talk with the people next to you and answer that question. Yeah, and Bianca's gonna come up and she's gonna strum a little bit. So go ahead and talk about that. And try to uh, remember what Trump means. Again, Trump, if you play cards, and my family kind of plays cards uh, a little bit. So Trump, again, outdone by another. So you're looking for one word, the best word that you think can describe the Bible. So go ahead and do that and come back to that in a couple minutes. All right, let's come back together. And we have the youth group here. What'd you all come up with? Anyone want to share? Jesus. A great description. Yes. Truth. How many of you said truth? Quite a few said truth. Okay, my question is this. This is the word for me that I like to use. Your word or whatever you chose could be great. I choose love. Did you say it? Yeah, I said it. Oh, okay. What's your name? <laughs> Tiffany. See, Tiffany, I think I have some cash on me. So, <laughs> um, but good job. Uh, see me afterwards and my brother will give you some money, actually. Um, but good job, love. I, and I'm sure nobody else said it. Now they're gonna start fighting. Okay, but that's the last cash offer for the evening. But love, for me, love does it. Truth, absolutely. Amen to that. That's part of it. But for me, it is about love. It's about God's love throughout Scripture, let alone in our own lives and how we are supposed to reflect God's love. Remember, I mentioned this. It's when we read the Gospels, when we read through the Bible, let's stop the tendency in asking, what does the text say about me? But ask what the text says about God. Next, I want you to do this now in your groups. Define the term conditional state. So go ahead and do that in your groups. Bianca's going to come back up. And I think there might be one more time, but I'm not sure. Bianca's going to strum a little bit more. But again, in your groups, come up with a one sentence, short sentence, please, definition of what you think a conditional statement is. So go ahead and do that. We'll come back there in a couple minutes. Okay, let's come together. I'm going to go back to the youth group because it's the group, well, I most love, or I'm closest to. Any thoughts? What's your name? The money I gave to Tiffany, you're going to now get, so <laughs> I'm just kidding. Edwin, right? Yes. Okay. Now, what did you say again? If this happens, then this. If this, happens, then this. Do me a favor. I'm going to stand over there, and you'll be close to the mic, and I'm going to have you read something on the screen for me, okay? okay. Read this for me. 
A conditional statement is one that can be put in the form of if A, then B, where A is called the premise of antecedent uh -huh. and B is called a conclusion of consequence. Amen to that. Or consequence. Uh, now you're getting corrected by everyone. Yeah, let me read this for us. A conditional statement is one that can be put in the form if A, then B, where A is called the premise or antecedent and B is called the conclusion or consequence, right? Are we good with this statement, with this definition? The definition of a conditional statement. Actually, I'm just going to speak to this group. We're good with that, right? Let's keep going. Now, this is only going to take a minute, but if you want to come up one more time, in one minute, this is what I'd like you to do. I'm only going to give you one minute because most of us grew up in the faith. We grew up in the church, right? Not all of us, but a great deal of us. So I'm only going to give you a minute to do this. If there is one thing that we grew up with in the church, it's that God's love is unconditional. Another past student from a youth group here from Southern California who's here, but he's reformed his ways from the Kim Kardashian Christianity of L.A., and he now lives here in the Bay Area, and he's now a Secret Service agent, so he does know secrets, but you can't get them from him. What we grew up with is this. I grew up with it, at least, that God's love is only or is unconditional. So in one minute, I want you to do this. List 10 verses in the Bible or passages clearly defining and describing God's love as an unconditional love, okay? I'm gonna give you one minute. Should be a no-brainer, you grew up with this. So go ahead and do that. We'll come back together in about a minute. Okay, so here we are. We're back, maybe in a little longer than a minute. But the students are devoutly searching their Bibles, and most of them said this without me even asking them. They said John 3.16. <laughs> right? It's what we grew up with, right, Bianca? It's John 3.16. Yeah. But if we read John 3.16, even in itself, as... Conditional. Yeah, it is conditional. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And then here it is, that whoever what? Believes in him shall not perish. The question that we have to start asking is this. What does it mean to what? To believe. That's the question. That's the question. Now, there is a passage out there. And I'll ask this question. What core verse is used to describe God's love as being unconditional? And some of you, by the way, did share this with each other, right? You shared this verse, Romans 5.8. It's where it comes from. This theology of God's love being unconditional, believe it or not, isn't very old. It started in the 1960s. Okay, that's when this theology started. It says this, but God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. That's where it comes from. That's why this concept, this theology, really took off, and it was in the 1960s. Let's keep going. Joining together the Old and the New, specifically joining together the Old Testament and the New. Eight words. What are these eight words? I teach the Old Testament. Specifically, I teach Exodus. The eight words are this. Well, it's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Or it could either be before or besides. Okay, it's interchangeable there. Eight words. That's our first commandment. It's only eight words. But we talked about this last week. Anybody want to venture to guess how many words the second commandment contains? This one has eight. The second commandment has 91 words. It has 91 words. The first one is, well, it's clear and it's to the point. The second one, well, think about the Talmud. Think about the depth, perhaps, of the Bay Area versus Kim Kardashian Christianities. 91 words, but I'm going to break it into three sections, okay? 
If you want, turn to Exodus chapter 20, please. And the books we're going to be in tonight, we're going to be in Exodus, Matthew, John, and then 1 John. But turn to Exodus chapter 20, please. Second book in the Bible. I think it's still second book. Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have your Bibles, there's a pew Bible there in front of you. If not, let me read this for us. Verse 4, it begins, You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Just with that, we can spend a long time talking about even what that means or what that meant back then. Or that is in the water under the earth. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. And we know this part. But it doesn't finish there. It keeps going. Next, says this, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. When I work with students at Azusa Pacific where I teach, for one of the first times in their Christian lives, they feel at peace or they feel at ease asking certain questions that perhaps they don't feel comfortable asking at their church. For instance, the question always comes up for my students is, this makes God look weak. Because our human understanding, or for the most part, their understanding of being jealous usually means some kind of weakness in an individual. Let alone God, a God who has everything, who has all the power in the world. What could God possibly be what? Be jealous of, right? So let's look at the last part. It says this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and mothers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. And then here it is. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who do what? Love me and keep my commandments. It's very clear. How do we love God? That's the question that comes up. Well, here it says, the way that we love God is by doing what? Yes, by keeping his commandments, right? I'll show you this again. But showing steadfast love, it says, to thousands of those who love and keep my commandments. Love me and keep my commandments. But then we can think, you know what? That's the Old Testament. That's the law. We have a New Testament. We have basically a new law. Well, let's keep going. What is the purpose of the law? the commandments from Yahweh or from God? Because that's another question that we need to ask. What is the purpose of this law that was written thousands of years ago? I talked about a couple of parts in the law as far as what you could do with a rebellious teenager, what you could do with a daughter selling her into slavery. We just don't do that anymore. It's not a part of today's law. But again, I ask the question, what is the purpose of the law? To test in fear. You're in Exodus chapter 20, correct? Let me start in verse 18 of Exodus chapter 20. Again, if you don't have that, I'll have it here on the screen. It says this, When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, this is immediately following receiving the Ten Commandments. Okay? Let me read this again. When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled, and stood at a distance, said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not Basically, please do not let God speak to us or we will die. They're terrified. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come only to what? To test you and to put the fear of him upon you. But even there is a purpose. Why test? Why put the fear in them? So that you do not sin. That's its purpose. That's the purpose of the law. That's what it is. And I can even ask that question now. I can ask all of us, 
How do I know you're a good American citizen? How do I know you're a poor American citizen? Depends on how many laws you follow and how many laws you break. I mentioned a former student who's here now, a Secret Service agent. Paul, if I can ask you, what is the majority of your work? The Secret Service, a majority of its work works with fraud, is that right? Percentage-wise, what is it? Yes. But all kinds, right? All kinds of fraud. And depending on the level of fraud will depend on the level of the punishment, right? The more laws we break, and especially certain laws, the greater the punishment. I was sharing with my brother, I don't think I ever shared with you about the caps. I don't think I ever told you that. I can think of one thing when I was a little kid that I stole. And I was nine years old, nine or 10. I'm trying, I was trying to remember it. When I was a kid, kids had little cap guns. You would buy these little rolls of caps, these little red caps, and you'd put them in a little pistol, a little gun, and you know, you'd play, well, cops and robbers or whatever, right? I'd see kids in the neighborhood using these little cap guns, right? But my parents didn't have the money. I didn't have the money to actually buy the gun, to use the caps. But I really wanted the caps. And so I went to a thrifty, or today it's Rite Aid, and I stole a little tiny box. And so I'm walking home from this thrifties, and um, the further I got away from the thrifties, the worse I felt. And I get home, and again, I still don't have this little gun, but I had the curb right there in front of the house. And I had a little rock, and so I laid them out on the curb, and a lot of you are shaking your heads, oh, I remember that. And I was hitting them with the rock. Pow, 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 pow. But the more I hit, the worse I felt. And I threw them away eventually. I probably should have taken them back, but I didn't. I thought I was gonna be arrested by a Secret Service agent named Paul. <laughs> so we have this, let's keep going. Yom Kippur. This is the highest holy day in Jewish tradition. It's not Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah is not. It is Yom Kippur. And if you don't know what Yom Kippur, it's this. It's the Day of Atonement, okay? It's a day of repentance and making amends. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew real quick. But before we get to Yom Kippur, one of the things that's really important to understand is this word. It's Erev. Anybody know what Erev means? Yeah, and we should know. We're, well, we're born-again Christians. Erev, it means this. It means Eve in Hebrew. What's really important is this, is to understand that there is an Erev Yom Kippur. When I was younger, when I was a kid growing up, we used to go to church, not on Christmas, but when? Christmas Eve, right? That midnight service. A lot of you still do that. We grew up doing that. Yom Kippur, or Erev Yom Kippur, it's reconciliation. Let me remind you, Jesus is Jewish. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. There's so much here, but I'm only going to concentrate on a couple things here. Let's look at verse 14 of Matthew chapter 6. Let me remind you, Jesus is what? Jesus understands Yom Kippur. But Jesus also understands Erev Yom Kippur, which, by the way, is just as important. And I'm going to show you why. Erev Yom Kippur and Yom Kippur, okay? It says this, for if, which, is this going to be a conditional statement, Joe? Yes. It's my nephew. Yes. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also do what? It is a conditional statement, you all. It is a conditional statement. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. 
It's very clear, and these aren't my words, I'm not making them up. Bianca, whose words are there? They're Christ, right? This is a Rev Yom Kippur. In other words, unless you forgive each other, unless we do that, we cannot experience what? Forgiveness from the Father. That's Yom Kippur, the greatest holy day of the year in the Jewish tradition, in Jesus' tradition. Unless you celebrate a Rev Yom Kippur, you cannot enter into the Day of Atonement. We must forgive each other, and then we can ask forgiveness of who? Of God. Let me keep going. One of my students, this last year, she is fantastic. Her name is Jordan Leander. She said this, as humans, even initiative is not enough. Why follow what is commanded when contentment can be reached even through disobedience? In other words, this is the theology that most of my students at Azusa Pacific, and they actually feel comfortable sharing with it, this is the theology that they were raised with. Accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and then I'm done. Try to do your best, but even if you don't, you know what, that's okay. In fact, don't even try, just make the effort. Or at least say that you're making the effort. It's not what the faith is about. Especially when I show this part, and I would be willing to say 50% of my students in each class has 30 students in it have never seen this text. They never see it. And when they see it, it stops them. There's silence. Because then in their head, they're starting to think, oh my gosh, I have a lot of people to forgive. Or I have a lot of people to ask for forgiveness for. And then I ask this question to the young 18, 19-year-olds. Maybe I'll ask it here. What percentage of Facebook would you say is gossip? You said 99%. And might that be low? Yeah. And that's the answer I always get from teenagers. 99% of Facebook is gossip. But then if I ask my sister-in-law, she may not say that because she'll use it for invitations, she'll use it for other things. What's that? Recipes. And recipes, there we go. But when I ask youth, they'll say 99% of Facebook is about gossip. Let me keep going. The Gospel of John, chapter 14. Let's turn there now. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then we are at John. John, chapter 14. John, chapter 14, is another one of those texts that, well, it really stops people. I'm going to start reading verse 1, and it says this. Do not let your hearts be what? Be troubled. Now, <laughs> I love my brother, and I respect the heck out of my brother. And even today, I don't like to disappoint him. And I remember even growing up as a kid, thinking I was going to disappoint him, and I didn't want to. And not wanting to feel, not necessarily my brother's wrath, but him being disappointed in me. The Gospel of John, verse 14, starts off, do not let your hearts be troubled. One of my nephews, Matthew, is working in the city. And I think we've all, where I'm going to go, we have jobs and then we have job evaluations. And there are times when it's as if that evaluation starts off, hey, don't be troubled, or don't be worried, or don't panic, and all we can do is what? Is worry and panic. But that's how Jesus starts this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. What's coming? Trouble. Let me keep reading. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If, 
it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Verse 4, and you know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, I'm going to jump to verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I'm going to jump down now to verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. But the question we then have to ask is this, what does it mean to ask in God's name? Let me keep reading. If you want in your Bibles, start circling the ifs. If you love me, you do what? You will keep my commandments. This is in the gospel of what? It's in the gospel of John. It's not in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Jesus is Jewish. The Bible is Jewish. It's what the Bible is. I can ask this question. I will ask this question. What life is more difficult to lead, the Old Testament life or the New Testament life? It depends on where we are in life. For me, it's the Old Testament life without a doubt. The reason I say that is because in the Old Testament life, at what point are you guilty of theft, of robbery, at the act? At what point are you guilty of adultery? In the act. New Testament doesn't say that. Jesus raises the bar. You're guilty of adultery when you think about it, right? You're guilty of theft when you think about it. And then there's murder. In the Old Testament, you're guilty of murder when you commit the act. Jesus says you're guilty when? When you get angry with a brother. Listen to me. Jesus raises the bar. Since the 1960s and this idea that God's love is only unconditional, we have lowered that bar. And it's gotten lower and lower and lower. Not at region, but it's gotten lower. Let me keep reading. Let me start again in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you orphaned. That's another thing I don't think I want somebody to say to me, especially my God, the person I'm worshiping, let alone if you're married, I don't think you want to hear this from your spouse. Hey, I'm never going to leave you. I mean, maybe you do, but you understand the context. Let me keep going. Verse 19, in a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's part of the Trinity, by the way. That's this little Trinity. Jesus is the Father, the Father's in him, and then Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. Let me keep going. 21 is a key. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Verse 21 is a key. Is it conditional? Absolutely. Sometimes I get the young students, and they absolutely feel that they are so much smarter than all their professors, especially me, and they say, well, no, 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 no. 
this is agape love. You don't understand the Greek word agape. And so I do this. Well, okay. Let's look at this again. Verse 21 says, they who have my commandments. And by the way, it's not enough to have the commandments. It says this, they who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father. And I will love or agape them and reveal myself to them. So they say, see, 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 this is unconditional love. It's okay. And then I always say this, okay, well, then let's read it that way. And let's see what it looks like or sounds like. It says this, they who have my commandments and keep them are those who what? Unconditionally love me. We don't think about that. We don't think about our responsive faith. We just want God to respond to us. Let me read this again. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who unconditionally love me. And those who unconditionally love me will be unconditionally loved by my Father. And I will unconditionally love them and reveal myself to them. It's conditional, you all. It's incredibly conditional. My point is this, God's love isn't only unconditional. And there are passages throughout scripture where this type of love is shown, but there's also this. And please, I'm not making this up. Whose words are they? They're the words of Christ. Bianca, come on up here, please. Bianca's going to strum a little bit. Um, think about this and how instead of looking at it this way, and we say, well, Agape means unconditional. Then let's read it this way. It puts a completely different spin on it. And we also have to be careful about the cliche and platitude issue. Talk about this and talk about perhaps how wrong I truly am. Go ahead and talk about it. Your groups will come back together in a couple minutes. All right, let's come together. When we look at it this way, it definitely, definitely puts it in a different light. And when my students look at that, my goodness, there's usually silence. I love what you're saying. And you're talking about rationalizing things. That's another thing we do. And in fact, being human, just as Americans, we rationalize a lot of things. Or we want the Bible to match our personal theology. This is what I think. Again, look at the size of this Bible. We can find a theology that matches what we think, what we believe, what we want. That's what we do. Let me keep reading. The Gospel of John. Let me keep reading. Let me start in 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, and he goes back to this. Those who love me will do what? Will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. Just like I just said right now, I said, by the way, these aren't my words. These are the words of Christ. Jesus does the same thing. Jesus is telling him, hey, look, if you have a problem with this, they're not my words. They're my Father's. Turn to 1 John, please. To find 1 John, go all the way to the back of the Bible, go to Revelation, then start going left, and you'll find 1 John. 1 John, this little letter is one that is about love. It's this little love letter. I'm going to tell you a story, if I can, if I can get through it. Again, my brother's here, and I think I've told this story before with my brother present. I'm not sure. There's three parts to the story. When I was younger growing up, 
we love sports, still do. Nowadays, what we have is sports talk radio everywhere. And there are times when I'm correcting papers for eight, nine, 10 hours, and in the background, I have on for eight, nine, 10 hours sports talk. And I probably need to confess that. Well, I am confessing that and ask for forgiveness for doing so as I read these papers on the Bible. But sports is not just a subculture. It's a major part of our culture, sports entertainment. I'm largely into sports because my brother. And when we were younger, when Pop Warner season was over in the summer, at the recreation at the local school, the recreation, they had flag football. And so we got to play. Basically, within a city, you had one school, then you had another school. So you'd play other areas of the same city, but you'd play against other schools. And we were at the school called Beardsley in the city of Duarte, down in Southern California. And we were in the championship game. And we were playing against this team, uh, Royal Oaks. And where we lived, we didn't just live below the tracks, we lived below the freeway and the tracks. That's where we were. And where they lived, they lived far above those things. Well, uh, my brother's a couple years older than me. He's still a great athlete. He runs marathons and triathlons and everything. And, you know, he's about six feet, about 175 pounds, right? And I'm not. But, you know, you've got to know your strengths, right? You can go five, six years without running and then just go out and run eight, nine, ten hours. And I remember asking him, how can you do that? And he said, well, I just have a body built for running. And I said, well, I have a body built for cake. And then uh, I shared that with somebody else, and they said, well, you really have to know your strengths. <laughs> we were playing in this game, and I'll never forget this guy's name. They had this one player, and he was our best player, and his name was Portia, and he was their quarterback. And my brother was our quarterback. And out of the blue, Portia comes up to me, and he hits me, and I'm down on the floor. And my brother comes out of nowhere and just clocks this guy. And I'm on the ground, and Portia's on the ground, and my brother helps me up, and he says, if you ever do this again, blank, 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 you'll be on the ground again. But I remember lying there and looking up at my brother, Matthew and Joe, looking at your father, and we were thinking, ah, what a guy. Well, years later, he graduates, or he's at Cal, and it's a week where I come up here to visit him, and I'm spending time with him. And we go into the city, and we're cycling. And we're cycling with a, with a friend of ours who actually still lives out in the city, and he also graduated from Cal. And it's not easy to cycle in a city. In fact, I'd much rather walk because of the streets. But what started happening is after each hill that seemed to get more and more steep, or steeper and steeper, I got further and further behind. I even mentioned this to my brother and sister and my nephews. I said, gosh, you know, are there any fat people in San Francisco? Any overweight? It's almost like there's a conspiracy. So they're getting further and further away from me. And finally, the one guy, this guy named John, he's gone. I don't see him anymore. And then I look up again, and then my brother's gone, and I don't see him anymore. But what my brother did is he made a big loop, and then he came back down the hill, and he said, you know what, we'll go up this together. I know where we are. I know how to get back. If we can bike it, we'll bike it. If not, we'll walk. And again, I'm kind of looking above and looking up at him, and I'm thinking, ah, what a guy. Well, let me back up a few years when we were kids. I'm a younger brother, and so I do things that, well, makes it, I did things that make older brothers angry or older siblings. There was one day when I did something, and I can't even remember what it was, but boy, did I make an upset. And we lived in a house where within the house, you can do a full 360. You can run around the, within the house. Just keep running, 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 running in a circle. And he's chasing me. And I'm terrified. So at that point, I'm running faster than he is. 
but it's your house, you grow up in it, and you know when a corner's coming up, when to speed up, when to slow down. And so what I did is I ducked into one of the bathrooms, and there were two bathrooms. Out of foolishness or out of fear, I don't know. I ducked into the wrong bathroom. I ducked into the bathroom that didn't have a lock on the door. But it was small enough where I could sit on the floor and put my back up against the bathtub and lock my knees in, well, that was the lock. And he was pretty upset. And I remember he banged on the top of the door. And I remember the door opened up a little bit. That's how angry he was. At least that was my viewpoint. It was 3.45 p.m., I remember. And my mother didn't get home till about 4.30. And I was thinking, I don't think I can survive. But I'm thinking, it's 45 minutes that I have to survive. 45 minutes. Then my brother, there's silence out there. And I don't hear anything. I'm going to start reading for us in 1 John chapter 4. Let me start reading in verse 13. Now, again, my brother's angry, and he walks up. He's on the other side of the door, and he says, hey, listen to something. And he starts reading this. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son, the Savior of the world. Verse 15, God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Verse 17, love has been perfected among us. Now, I'm a little kid on the floor looking up at the door. And he's reading this. I'm thinking he's a little crazy. Or I'm thinking it's a trick. Let me keep reading. That we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Verse 18. And then it says this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. And then here it is. This is the key verse. Verse 20. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers, Miguel, or sisters, are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Verse 21. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. I'm a little kid looking up at him and thinking he wants to do some damage to me. But instead he reads this. What I didn't know and what I don't think he knew is, yes, it's truth here, but it's also a condition. It's a conditional statement. Jesus loves us, but we have a responsibility in the faith. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the music, Lord. I thank you for the gift of your words and the gift of your spirit and Lord, the gift of each other, of one another, the gift that we have where we can spend time with one another and we can learn from one another and where we can love one another. In your name we pray, amen.